All right, 2 Samuel chapter 20 is where we continue on this evening. As we come to this section, we're right on the heels, remember, of uh, this process of restoring King David uh, back to the throne after a time of rebellion that his son Absalom had led where he sort of pushed David off of the throne for a short season. Uh, Absalom has been dealt with. Unfortunately, Absalom has lost his life in the midst of military conflict and the people have now decided to bring David back to Jerusalem. Again, as the rightful king, as God's king, the one who should be reigning on the throne, David has now crossed back over into Jerusalem and is now sort of reestablishing himself there on the throne as God's rightful ruler. And we saw as we left off at the end of chapter 19 that in the midst of this process uh, that there was sort of some dispute that was going on there uh, between the men of Judah and the men of Israel. It tells us, if you'll just look back at the end of chapter 19 sort of as a backdrop, it says there in verse 42 that all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel because there was this bickering, I guess verse 41 really we should look from, uh, there where they had said, why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household and all David's men with them across the Jordan? And then Judah answered the complaint of the men of Israel because the king is a close relative of ours. Why are you angry over this matter? Have we ever eaten anything at the king's expense or has he given us any gift and the men of Israel then answered back in response to the men of Judah well we have 10 shares in the king because of course there were 10 tribes uh, of Israel therefore we have more right to David than you why then do you despise us we were not the first to advise bringing back our king yet the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So again, we see this dynamic where because for a time uh, the rightful king, David, God's king, because the rightful king was not reigning for a season, every just, everything just became in disarray among the people of God. And when the rightful king is not ruling in the hearts of God's people, uh, there are always symptomatic problems discord, division, selfishness, arguing, complaining, strife. Uh, you can always tell when the rightful king is not ruling because that tends to be the atmosphere that gets created, whether it's in a family or in a marriage or even within uh, the realm of, of God's people or the church, that when the rightful king is not on the throne, uh, people start to act in very selfish and unbecoming ways. And so here there's this dispute going on rather than them rejoicing that David's back and rather than them celebrating that the king is back on the throne, they're arguing really over whose idea it was and who's the one that deserved to kind of bring him back first. And they're kind of disputing over this whole thing here, going back and forth, again, just showing the deep need that we have to be ruled over in our lives because we don't do a very good job ruling over ourselves. Uh, we typically make a mess of things. So David's now coming back to the throne, but it's in the midst of that backdrop of this contention that's going on that chapter 20, again, no chapter verse breaks in the original manuscript. It says, and there happened to be there, that is in the midst of all this disputing, there just happened to be a rebel. Imagine that. Uh, they tend to show up uh, at the right times uh, because usually rebels are opportunists. Uh, and usually rebels tend to have this ability to see opportunistic moments to capitalize for what they want for their own self-interest. So there just happened to be a rebel there that day whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet and he said, we have no share in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. So every man of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri, this rebel, starting a new rebellion now. But the men of Judah from Jordan as far as Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. So take notice here, this man, Sheba, uh, this man who was a rebel at heart, right in the midst of sort of some of the, the, the conflict and sort of the sensitive uh, moment that was going on among the people, he now capitalizes on this opportunity to create really just a, another uprising. It won't last very long, but this rebellious man at heart 
makes an effort now to once again cause a rift to pull people away from following David, the rightful king. Really, you could say pulling them away from God's king, the authority that God had and God had selected for his people and to really draw away of following after himself. And I look at this picture here and I think what a fitting illustration uh, this man Sheba, uh, the son of Bichri is, uh, of really the response of the flesh, of our sinful nature. Uh, because again, keep in mind, what's just happened? There's been an effort to restore the rulership of the rightful king. And when there's an effort to restore the rulership of the rightful king, there is always going to be a counter response of a rebellion against that that's going to happen. Because our flesh is always going to work in opposition to the ministry of the spirit of God taking place in our hearts. And I don't know about you, but it seems like that whenever someone begins to desire to turn to Jesus whether it's for the first time in their life and they come to that place where they recognize, you know what, life hasn't gone very good with me trying to be on the throne. Uh, and it hasn't worked out really well. And I've been living in rebellion to God's design and God's plan for my life. And I believe that Jesus should be Lord over my life. I believe he is the King of Kings and maybe he should be in charge and I should let him rule. That whenever a person turns and makes an effort towards embracing the rulership of the rightful king, the flesh always has a counter response to that and wants to resist that and wants to rebel against that. And there's this struggle that goes on in the human heart. And I think in our own lives, whenever perhaps we come to those times or occasion where maybe we have kind of let things uh, sort of uh, get out of alignment and, and we've perhaps pulled back a little bit from living in submission to Jesus and, and we say, you know what, I, I need to make a recommitment to Christ and I need to embrace the rightful rulership of Jesus over my life once again because things have been a mess in my life and it's been just all discombobulated and my marriage is a mess and my family is a mess and, 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 and all of this is a, is a direct indication of the fact that the rightful king hasn't been ruling over me so we make an effort to move in that direction and boy the flesh always is going to bring resistance to that there's always going to be a rebellion against that an effort to resist it and to turn against it. And to me, that's what Sheba here is a picture of. Again, he just, in this opportunistic way, being influenced, no doubt, with an enemy uh, to the throne. And again, the enemy is always going to manipulate and try and resist anything like this. He tries to draw away now a rebellion against uh, the people who would want to embrace David's rulership. And he says, that's it. Whoever is with me, we have no share in David. Forget about David. Every man to his own tents. And sadly, for a brief moment, verse 2 tells us that there was, again, sort of this brief division, uh, this civil, uh, you know, sort of civil war is going to take place kind of briefly, where it says the people of Israel uh, deserted David once again to follow this rebel Sheba. And the men of Judah, however, remained loyal uh, to David during this time. Now, notice from verse 2, whenever something like this takes place, we all have a decision what we're going to do. We are going to make a decision in our lives, every one of us, just like every one of those men did, who we're going to choose to be loyal to. And we have a decision because there are going to be times when there are going to be things, there are going to be people, and even among the body of Christ. Paul warned about uh, speaking to the Ephesian elders when he was leaving. He said, you know, I, I, I've warned you that he says men are going to rise up from within speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. So when Paul warned the church in the, in the days there in Acts chapter 20 when he was speaking to the Ephesian elders, he said, look, it's not only people from the outside that you have to worry about. He said, there are going to be times when men with a perverse agenda will rise up from within speaking perverse things to draw away followers after themselves. And in those moments, whether it's something of that nature or just something trying to pull us away from our loyalty to the king, to Jesus, our king, we have a decision. We can either desert the Lord and we can, we can rebel and turn away or we can choose to stay loyal to the Lord. And a lot less, notice, chose to stay loyal to the Lord. But what are we going to do? We have the decision. God help us to be those like the men of Judah who say, you know what, I don't care who's rebelling or who's doing what, I'm remaining loyal to the king. 
I'm going to remain loyal no matter what it costs me or what it involves. And, and I'm just going to stay with him because he is the right king. And of course, that should be our heart towards Jesus to choose to remain loyal to him. Well, verse 3 then tells us that David, as he comes back now to his palace there in Jerusalem at his house, it says the king took the ten women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house, put them in seclusion and supported them, but did not go into them. That is, he never had any more relations with them physically. So they were shut up to the day of their death, living in widowhood. Now, we just get this little interesting sort of follow-up here, verse 3, kind of almost seems like a, a odd, obscure little insert here in the midst of this story. But what this is doing is sort of following up on what, remember, happened when David was driven out of Jerusalem. It tells us that as David gathered his household and his servants and the people who followed him because he did not want to create a bloodbath when Absalom came forcefully trying to take the throne away from David, that David, it said, left these ten concubines, uh, th these women who were a part of really what was honestly nothing other than what we would call a harem in some ways, to keep the house. And remember, Absalom, as an act of trying to show his, you know, really complete separation from his father, had set up a tent on the roof of the house and then went in and had relations with these women who were his father's concubines to really indicate to the people he was severing all ties from his father and to try and show that he was now taking control of the rulership and of the throne there in Jerusalem. Well, these women have been abused. They've been defiled. They've been mistreated. They've been disgraced in really about the most horrific way possible abused and really taken advantage of and dishonored and David now returning knowing what has happened to them seeks to make the best he can out of a really bad situation and he shows compassion towards them and here David taking compassion upon them no longer does he you know interact with them in any physical way but he doesn't just cast them aside altogether it says that he provided for them he took care of them and he supported them and he still in a sense honored his commitment to them and recognized you know what hey it's not right for me to continue to be in relationship with these women however i do have an obligation to them and i should still support them and i should still care for them and so david here is just showing compassion to try and help them as the result of being wounded and mistreated the way they were and i think to, to a degree there's a beautiful example there in David's heart of having a sensitivity towards those who've been deeply wounded and mistreated because, you know, there are some different things that go on in our culture uh, where people get horrifically mistreated and abused. And here, I think this is a very beautiful thing. David generously doing the best he can to try and honor them for the rest of their life, to give them some support and to, to show them some measure of compassion and assistance. Well, verse 4, they're not going to deal with this rebellion that's happened. So it says the king said to Amasa, remember his newly appointed general who took the place of Joab because David's upset with Joab as a result of killing his son Absalom when David asked them to spare him. David had given Amasa a chance to take over. So he turns to Amasa and he says to him, assemble the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed him. So David gives this assignment to Amasa, his new general, and he says, listen, rally the troops. I'm giving you three days. Go throughout Jerusalem. David understands that this rebellion needs to be addressed quickly and it needs to be resolved because rebellion left undealt with can have some really bad symptomatic effects down. So David says, look, quickly, I'm giving you three days. So Amasa gets his first assignment, really, as the new general here to go out and rally the troops. The king gives him his assignment. But verse five tells us that he went out, but he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed for him. So uh, when the king gives him this command and his assignment, he doesn't follow through with the assignment. Now, this could be a couple of things. First, this could be a clear indication that Amasa really is not a very competent military general. This could just show his lack of competency. Again, remember, David kind of appointed him in a diplomatic way to show that he didn't have a grudge against the people 
as the result of the rebellion of Absalom. And, and some of this appointing Amasa was David's way of saying, look, I'm not angry. I'm not holding a, a, a grudge against anyone. Please, let's reconcile. I'll even make Amasa my new general over my army. Because remember, he was Absalom's general when Absalom had rebelled against David. So it could just prove, again, we know Amasa really had no military background. This could just show his incompetency to lead and that he's not really very skilled. In the, he has the position, but he doesn't really have what's required to fulfill the position. Uh, he's just been given the opportunity and he can't really fulfill what's been asked of him. This also could be an indication that he really lacks a lot of respect among the people. That perhaps the people look at him as just sort of a, a, a puppet man in a position and they have no respect for him. So when he goes out to rally the troops, nobody really responds. Either way, what we see here is Amasa receiving a command and an assignment from his king and he doesn't follow through with the assignment. And not only does he not follow through, it tells us here that he delays longer than the set time. So when we receive an assignment, when you receive a command from your king, when I do from my king, it's important that we follow through and it's important that we follow through without delay. His problem was he delayed and delaying to fulfill an assignment from your king is never a good thing. Amasa here ends up losing the opportunity and David will just choose someone else and send them instead. And this man forfeits an opportunity to fulfill a work that, that his king wanted him to do. And in some ways, he's a good reminder to us that when our king gives us a command, delay is not a good idea. When your king speaks to you, when Jesus says to you, I want you to do this, delayed obedience is disobedience. When the Lord speaks to you, when the Lord tells me this is something I want you to do and he gives you an assignment, whatever that may be, we should say, yes, sir, and we should act. We should obey. We should follow through. And, and, and sadly, sometimes delaying from obeying what the Lord tells us can lead to a loss of opportunity. And there may be in some situations, and listen, I'm not saying that the Lord's not gracious and it's always a time-sensitive issue and it's a cut-and-dry thing. But there are certain things, I do believe, and there are certain times when, when like you know, the Lord spoke uh, you know, in the book of Esther, and you remember that, that coined phrase there where Mordecai tells her to, to go in and to intervene on behalf of the, the Jews with the king. And he says, how do you not know that for such a time as this, if God didn't raise you up and give you this very position and opportunity for such a time as this? And he says, and if you don't go in, God will raise up deliverance from somewhere else. In other words, for such a time as this, God's given you a window and opportunity to step in and to fulfill something he's asking you to do. And if you don't, it'll just be your loss. You'll miss the opportunity. You'll miss an occasion to be used by the Lord or to see what your king might do on your behalf and working through you. And this is a, a good reminder that, that we don't want to delay when the Lord tells us to do something. We want to act and obey in faith and walk out what he tells us to do. Well, because he delays longer than the set time appointed to him, verse 6, notice, David said to Abishai, he turns to someone else, and he says, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, is going to do us more harm than Absalom. If we let this rebellion go on any longer, this could be worse than what Absalom has already done. So he tells Abishai, remember who was another one of his military commanders, he says, look, it's your opportunity now. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape us. So Joab's men with the Cherethites... And the Pelethites and all the mighty men went out after him and they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. So notice, King David, it's not as if what he wanted to do gets completely frustrated by the failure of one of his servants. He just turns to another one of his servants, to Abishai, and he says, look, I sent out Amasa to gather a whole standing army from all of, uh, he says, from all of Judah, but I don't need all of Judah. You take some of the special forces, the Pelethites, the Cherethites. Notice Joab steps into the picture now. He, he, he's not going to let anybody take his job too easily. Joab finds himself back in the mix now. 
and they say, look, boss, we don't need all of Judah. All we need is the special forces unit, the green beret of our day. We'll go in, we'll track this guy down behind enemy lines and we'll take care of this rebellion. And again, we see this picture here of how when the king wants to get something done, he's not going to be frustrated by the failure or the lack of obedience of any man in a situation. He'll just find someone else to use. And, and Jesus is still going to do his work. King Jesus is still going to accomplish his plans. It's not as if human disobedience or failure frustrates him. He'll just find another way to accomplish it. He'll just find someone else to use. And so here now, the opportunity turns to other men and Joab steps right back into the mix. He says, look, I took my job. I'm going to get my job back real quickly. So he now goes in pursuit with a small unit, the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Again, these were, as I said, sort of the special forces of that day of David's men. Verse 8 says, And when they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. So here he's now on his way back. Uh, he hasn't got back on time. And now they encounter Amasa. Now Joab, it says, verse 8, was dressed in battle armor. And on it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath at his hips. And as he was going forward, it fell out. Now, what you have here is, again, Joab, remember, who dislikes Amasa. Amasa not only was Absalom's general, remember, but he's also coming. He's taking Joab's job now because David replaced Amasa by putting him in Joab's position. Uh, and, and Joab's, as we've seen, I mean, this is a fierce, military-hardened man. He's not going to take lightly to this. So as they're coming together to have an encounter, it says as they're walking forward, all of a sudden, Joab has a sword on him, and it says that he, and I believe probably this is all somewhat of a setup, his sword falls forward onto the ground as he encounters Amasa. Now, put yourself in Amasa's sandals. For Amasa... That would make him feel a little bit more at ease because Joab and a sword isn't real safe to be around. So as Joab walks forward, his sword falls out on the ground. Oh, oh, it's sword. So that makes Amasa feel a little bit sort of kind of disarmed because he feels like, okay, he doesn't have his sword on him. That's good for me. <laughs> I'm about to meet Joab. I haven't seen him since I took his job. But his sword just fell out. His sword's on the ground. So, so that makes me perhaps a little bit more safe. Now, as they're walking towards one another, the sword pops out and Joab says to Amasa, are you in health, my brother? How are you doing? You scoundrel who took my job. That's what he's thinking. And it says Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him, a cultural embrace again that ancient day. But Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand and he struck him with it in the stomach and his entrails poured out on the ground and he did not strike him again and thus he died. Now, aren't you glad you don't have the visual Bible? I mean, can you just imagine what that scene would look like? You know, somebody's an illustrator and they just illustrated all the things. I mean, here's Joab. Now, probably what happens is one of two things. Either as he went forward to embrace him, he probably had another dagger on him and just pulled the dagger out and just put it into his gut and you know, lifted it up and ripped his entrails out. Or as they went forward to embrace, Joab being the crafty soldier that he was, as he went forward, he probably brought that embrace right near it and just reached down and just took the sword and came right up into his stomach and, and basically executes Amasa here. And again, this is, this is Joab's known for. I mean, Joab is an executioner, a brutal man. So he now puts to death this new general, because no doubt he disliked him anyway and is angry that David's appointed him. And so, I mean, this vicious, uh, you know, sort of plot here to get rid of him. And then Joab, it says, verse 10, and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. So they've gotten rid of Amasa and they're going to go and take care of this rebel uh, to reprove their worth to King David. And meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa and said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. In other words, this is David's right general anyway. We should follow Joab. But Amasa, like we need to know this, right? Wallowed in his blood in the middle of the highway. 
And when the men saw all the people stood still, he moved Amasa from the highway into the field and threw a garment over him when he saw everyone who came upon him halted. So, I mean, again, this, you know, really just, you know, bloody gross scene here. He's laying there wallowing, you know, in the throes of death and, and people are going by and they're stopping and taking a look at him. So somebody has at least enough dignity to move him aside here and to cover him over so the focus and distraction isn't upon what's happened here. And verse 13 says, And when he removed from the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Vichri. And he went through all the tribes of Israel to Abal and to Beth Maacah and all the Barites. So they were gathered together and also went after Sheba. And then they came and besieged Nabal of Beth Maacah, and they cast up siege mounds against the city, and it stood by the rampart, and all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. So here's what we have happen here. They're pursuing Sheba, who has led this rebellion, this man who's caused all these problems and, and led this rebellion, and they're in hot pursuit of him, and he goes... And he basically enters into this territory now and he enters into a city and Joab and the men with him basically lay siege to the city. Now, I want you to notice here what Sheba does. I mean, he basically, knowing that he's guilty, knowing that he's caused all these problems and knowing that, that he's being pursued by a military group to put him to death for his wrong actions, he basically goes and hides in a city among a bunch of innocent civilians to basically protect himself and his own self-interest. I mean, to me, I look at that and I say, what a picture of a modern-day terrorist. I mean, he basically goes and hides among a bunch of innocent people in a city thinking, hey, this will be a way to keep myself safe because they won't harm and hurt all these people. So I'll basically surround myself with a bunch of innocent people and put all their lives at risk by basically hiding out and harboring myself among them here. So they now lay siege to this city. And again, which is basically laying siege, remember, was when they would sort of build sort of ramparts and walls and ramps up against the walls of a city. And it was a gradual process to just sort of starve the people out over time. They'd cut off their water and their food and their access in and out till eventually there would be submission. So that's what's taking place here. They have now laid siege to this city where Sheba is hiding out within. And notice verse 16 says that a wise woman, and it's always good to have one of them around because usually that's how a problem gets solved. This wise woman cries out from the city and said, Hear, hear, please say to Joab, come nearby that I may speak with you. And when he had come near to hear, the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. And then she said to him, Hear the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I am listening. So she spoke, saying, They used to talk in former times, saying, They shall surely seek guidance at Abal. And so they would end dispute. So she politely sends out a message to Joab. She says, I'd like to send a message to Joab. Can I speak with Joab? Joab comes forward. What is it that you'd like to share? And she says, listen, in, in the days of old, our city was known for having such wise people within it, such wise counselors, that people would come from all over to Abal, to this city, to basically get wisdom and counsel, she says, to seek guidance, how to end disputes, how to resolve problems. And she says, and I'm one of these people who have, uh, is left in the city that is one of the individuals that used to give out this counsel and this wisdom. And so she sort of is trying to interest Joab to take listen to what she would like to share to perhaps resolve this problem that she tells uh, can tell is a very dangerous situation where now as a result of a terrorist hiding out among them, everybody in the city is at risk at this point. So she doesn't want to see this happen. So she's sort of enticing Joab to be willing to listen. So she says, verse 19 to him, I am among the peaceable and the faithful in Israel. And she says, you seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? She says, why would you harm all of us and destroy all of us just because of one guilty rebel, a criminal that's hiding out among us? And Joab answered, far be it. Far be it for me that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not so. 
but a man from the mountains of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Vichri by name, he has raised his hand against the king, against David. Deliver him only, and I will depart from the city. So the woman said to Joab, watch, and his head will be thrown to you over the wall. Verse 22, so the woman in her wisdom went to all the people and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, took care of that terrorist once for all, and threw it out to Joab. And then he blew a trumpet and they withdrew from the city, every man to his tent. So Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. So a couple things we take notice. I mean, this, again, kind of radical story of thinking, oh my goodness, this is you know, qu- quite graphic things that are going on, you know, ancient warfare and cutting off heads and throwing heads over walls and so on and so forth. Again, we, we have to recognize what's taking place here. There's a rebel that has hidden himself among a group of innocent people. And as a result of that, they're all at risk. And she says, why would you destroy the whole city just because of the selfish, sinful actions of one rebellious man that's living among us? And he says, listen, Joab says, that's, that's not what our preference is, but we have an assignment here. And either with everyone in the city dying or with everyone in the city being spared, our one intention is that man must be put to death. He's a rebel. He's a threat to the civil interests. He's a threat to the throne. He's rebelled against King David. And we have an assignment and we're going to carry it out one way or the other. If you're willing to deliver him to us, then hey, we'd be more than glad to take what we need to and to move on and to leave everyone at peace. So she says, hey, understood. She goes back and she dialogues the people of the city and she says, look, why should we all suffer and die as the result of the rebellion of this man? We need to just put an end to this rebellion. Rebellion is wrong anyway. And we need to exercise capital punishment against this man for his criminal and evil deeds. And we'll spare all the other innocent people and no one else needs to die. and There need to be no more bloodshed. So off with his head and over the wall it goes. But uh, no doubt as we look at this, let me make a few applications that I think certainly perhaps maybe we can draw something out of this. And that's this, is that when someone is being rebellious against the authority of the Lord, and again, David was the Lord's anointed. David was was the Lord's king. So to rebel against David, you have to understand, to rebel against the throne of David was in essence the same as rebelling against the authority of the Lord because he was whom the Lord had put upon the throne. He was God's king in that day. So to, to rebel against David was to rebel against the authority of the Lord. And this scene shows us that whenever anyone is rebellious against the authority of the Lord, it puts other people at risk. Correct? Everyone in that city was at risk because someone was rebelling against the authority of the Lord. And I tell you something, whenever someone in their life rebels against the authority of the Lord over their life, they don't just cause problems for themselves. They put everyone else in danger around them. Whenever someone is being selfish and rebelling against what's right and doing what's wrong and just selfishly carrying out their own sinful acts, they don't just sin alone. All types of other innocent people who are around them and connected to them are ultimately being jeopardized and at risk for pain and problems themselves. Everyone in that city was in danger. And in the same way that that is true, the best way to deal with rebellion is onefold, to put it to death as quickly as possible. And, and, and by that I mean this, when I find in my heart, and I do, I hope like you at times find, that my heart can rebel against the Lord's authority in my life. But whenever I find anything in me that wants to be rebellious against the rulership of the Lord, the rulership and the authority of the Lord over my life, the best thing to do with that rebellious spirit within me is as quickly as possible to put that attitude to death. To just put it to death. You know, the Bible tells us that we're to do one thing with our flesh. That's our sinful nature. It says crucify the flesh. You don't make agreements with it and, and to allow rebellion against the will of God 
to just continue to carry on in a prolonged manner, it is just going to cause nothing but prolonged problems and a lot more people are going to suffer. And so, you know, perhaps tonight there's something that's been going on within you and maybe to some degree, you know, you've been finding your heart wanting to rebel against what you know is right. Let me encourage you, when you find that little rebellious spirit within yourself, and we all have it at times, and you find your heart wanting to just rebel against what you know is right, that you as quickly as possible recognize, you know what, that is wrong. And it needs to be put to death. Because it's not only going to cause problems for me, it's going to hurt a whole bunch of other people. You know, we've all seen this many times. You know, one person begins to rebel and go off track and whole families end up hurting. You know, heartache and devastation can come because of one person's rebellious and sinful and selfish acts. And here this man is doing this and so they quickly put an end to this. They squash the rebellion and as a result, people are spared. A lot of heartache doesn't happen. A lot of bloodshed doesn't take place. Again, this was something that needed to be done from a judicial standpoint. Now, the rest of the chapter here, verse 23 to 26, describes to us some of the... uh, people who were serving together with David. It says, Joab was over all the army of Israel. Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Again, that was sort of, as I said, the, the special forces units. He was the commander over them. Adoram was in charge of the revenue, so he was the secretary of treasury, we might say. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahulud, he was the recorder or sort of the you know, individual who maybe secretary of state who kept the records and those kind of things. Shiva was the scribe or the historian, the one who kept documentation of what happened. Zadok and Abiathar, they were the priests attending to the spiritual uh, practices, the sacrifices, the offerings, managing the things of the tabernacle and so forth of the worship system. And Ira the Jerite was a chief minister under David. Now, chapter 21 Verse 1 tells us another interesting occasion that happened. It says, now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Notice, year after year, and David inquired of the Lord. Now, typically famines were the result of drought. If there was not enough rain given upon the land, it would cause drought-like conditions and drought-like conditions then ultimately caused a famine or a lack of food. And for them to experience a famine, that would be like us in modern vernacular saying that the economy is really struggling. Uh, to have a famine for three years would be like you know, three years of real you know, economic struggle, more, maybe a, a recession or worse than that. I mean, this was their food source. They were an agrarian society. So this was a real hit to their economy. It caused people to struggle to survive and get by. So it wasn't something they could just ignore. So there's this, this large-scale problem among the people and it happens year after year. Maybe the first year they just thought, okay, well, I mean, this was just a bad year and you know, I, hopefully things will turn around next year. But then it happened the second year. And the, well, that's, man, this is, this is two years. Well, after the third year, it finally came to a point after the third year that notice David, again, no doubt knowing the Old Testament. And remember, one of the things God said back in the law was that if the people rebelled against God's word and they weren't obedient to the Lord, that one of the things that God may do would allow them to experience famine upon their land that God wouldn't send the rains. And so David, with an awareness of this and recognizing, boy, this has been three years in a row and the land is struggling and the people are in hardship, he says, you know, perhaps there's something deeper to this issue than just coincidence here. So it says in verse one here that David inquires of the Lord. He's wondering, you know, maybe there's something spiritual going on here. Maybe this isn't just a coincidental problem. Maybe really there's something God's trying to get our attention about and maybe something's not right between us and the Lord. Now, let me just say, this is a really wise approach because there's balance in this. Not every challenge and not every problem is an indication that something is wrong spiritually. And so we have to be careful. You know, if if we just find ourselves dealing with a little, you know, challenge or maybe a trial or a hardship... Every time we have a trial or a challenge or a hardship, it doesn't say the first week of the famine, David said, maybe something's not right between us and God. And we have to be careful. We don't want to you know, interpret every hardship and every difficulty. We live in a fallen world. 
things happen. Part of life is problems and setbacks. And so we don't want to be hyper reactive and think that every time something hard happens, that that's somehow God trying to get our attention or God's disciplinary action. We don't want to over kind of compensate in that way. However, sometimes it's not wise of us to neglect that maybe if something has been difficult for a long time, that maybe it is a spiritual issue <laughs> and maybe God is trying to get our attention and we can err on that side as well where for a prolonged period of time things are hard and difficult and it just seems like one thing after another and we're just, we just keep struggling and, and we're just ignoring the fact that hello, maybe God's trying to say something here. Maybe God's trying to get our attention and so David here, third year into this says maybe we should pray. Maybe there's more to this than meets the eye. And so he prays and seeks the Lord. He inquires and notice the Lord answered. And that's encouraging. When you seek God and say, God, is there something that's not right? Is there something that you're trying to speak to us about? The Lord is more than glad to answer in those situations. And he does answer verse one and two by saying, it is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites and the children of Israel had sworn protection to them. But Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. So David here finds out that this indeed was a spiritual issue, that God was upset because a covenant and a promise that had been made hundreds of years ago to the people of Gibeon had been violated and not kept. Again, if I can refresh your memory, Joshua chapter 9 tells us that when they came into the land as they were conquering territories, it tells us that the people of Gibeon became fearful because they realized that the people of Israel were just conquering territory left and right. So they put on, remember it says, old garments and they got moldy bread and old dried up wineskins and they came to Joshua and the people of Israel and said, hey, we're from a far country and they looked like they had traveled from a far distance and they said, look, we're not from the land here. We're from far away, but we'd like to make a peace treaty with you that we would never have conflict and, and it says that Joshua and the people of Israel, it says they sampled their provisions, that is, they looked at the outward circumstances, but they did not seek the Lord. And they made a peace treaty with them and a covenant and then afterwards found out they had been duped and deceived and that these were instead people that lived right within the land. And at that point, they had made a promise to them. They had made a covenant of peace with them, as we read here, to protect them and to not in any way bring warfare against them. So they had now made this covenant. It was their mistake. It was a poor decision on Joshua's behalf. But they had made a covenant and a promise to these people of Gibeon that they would not harm them and that they would always have peace with them. Well, apparently, at some point, we don't have the backstory. Saul, in his bloodthirsty attitude, at some point, had violated this covenant. And it says here that he had killed the Gibeonites. And as a result of that, when David inquires, he hears from the people of Gibeon directly here that the children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel. So something had transpired during the time of Saul's reign. We don't even have record of it where a bunch of these Gibeonites were not protected the way they had been promised. The covenant was violated and basically Saul put a bunch of them to death for some reason of his own self-interest trying to advance in some way his zeal and God was very displeased with this. And now, 40-some years later, after the reign of Saul, the consequence of this past problem is now sort of finally catching up and God is allowing this to come to pass. And as the result of that, this famine that's taking place here, and this was something God was not, was not pleased with. Now, this shows us a couple of things. First of all, God was displeased. Why? Because a covenant and a promise was not being honored. When we make promises, when we make covenants, God expects us to keep them. One of them called marriage. 
And God's not pleased when we don't keep our covenant. It displeases the Lord. When we make a promise, any kind of promise, any kind of a covenant, when we make a promise, God expects us to keep our promise. And when we disregard our promise that we've made before God and before people, whatever that promise may be, that displeases the Lord. And here, it had been many, many years later, but we see that sometimes what will happen is, is the consequences of poor decisions may not ultimately come to roost till many, many years later. So David now recognizes God's revealed this situation has transpired. These people have been put to death. Blood has been shed. So therefore, David wants to make this right to bring resolution. So verse three says, David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? He says, look, what can I do to make things right for the people who've been put to death by Saul among your tribe? What shall I do with what shall I notice? He says, make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord. And the Gibeonites said to him, we will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house. We're not looking for monetary compensation. We don't want a you know, class action lawsuit here. We just, we're not looking for money or payback nor shall you kill any man of Israel for us. We're not looking for you to go just put people to death to make us feel better. So he said, great. So whatever you say, I will do for you. And they answered the king, as for the man who consumed us, that was Saul and his family and plotted against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel. Let seven men of his descendants of Saul's house be delivered to us and we will hang them before the Lord and Gibeah of Saul whom the Lord chose and the king said I will give them now we may look at that and think well wow I mean first they say we don't want no money and we don't want you to kill anybody and David says okay that's fine but what we do want is seven men from Saul's house who are guilty of the bloodshed against our people we want seven of them to be executed now, we might look at that and think, well, man, that seems awful severe. Well, we have to understand, again, in that day, that was judicial to them. And the law said that when blood was shed, the only way to make atonement was that blood would also be shed by the murderous parties who had caused that bloodshed. This was judicial action in that day. This wasn't just revenge. The fact that they only asked for seven, they're not saying put the, to death all of his descendants. This was a judicial way to make restitution for something. And let me say as well, it is possible that those seven men honestly were not innocent. Because if you remember back in verse one, it said it is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house. In other words, these seven men could have been some of the individuals still alive to this day who had participated and benefited from whatever murderous actions Saul had contributed. We don't have all those details. But nonetheless, David realizes we need to do what is right to bring restitution in this situation. So the king, it says, took Armoni, Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel. So she had none of her own children, but she apparently raised five of the children from one of her sisters, the son of Barzillai, the Melathite, and he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell all seven together and were put to death in the days of the harvest, the first days in the beginning of the barley harvest. That would be around April, the barley harvest. Now Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth, spread it out for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. So that's about six months later around the October time frame when the latter rains would come. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them nor the beasts of the field day or night. So basically what she's doing is she's protecting now their bodies. Again, you have to understand in that day, there was something more undignified than even being put to death, and that was to not have a proper burial. For a Jew, that was a disgrace. To not be properly buried, to not have a dignified burial, was an incredible disgrace. So these men have been hung in a judicial act, and so now the mother of two of them and the other five were, it seems, sort of nephews of her, for six months straight, that's what this is describing, for six months straight, she's staying out there because their bodies haven't been properly, in a sense, disposed of and guarding them to try and honor them, to give them some dignity in their death 
as an act of closure. And verse 11 says, David seeing this was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine had done. So he went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the Beth Shion, where the Philistines had hung them up. And after the Philistines had struck down Saul and Gilboa, and so he brought up the bones of Saul and Jonathan and gathered the bones of those who had been hanged, these seven men who were put to death. And verse 14, David buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan. The idea is Jonathan, Saul, these men, put them in the tomb there of Kish's father that is in their family tomb to give them a dignified burial. So they performed all the king commanded. Look at the end of verse 14. And after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. So notice, again, difficult things to read through, but what we see is when they realize that something was not right between them and God, that God was not pleased with something, the people found it critical to do whatever was necessary to make things right. They didn't just brush it aside and say, well, I mean, maybe if we just ignore it long enough, maybe eventually everything will go back to normal. Well, that's not how things work. When something needs to be made right and God reveals something's not right, it does not matter what personal sacrifices it may cost. It may not, you know, it may not matter how much you have to do, what effort. I mean, there was a lot that went on in the situation to make it right. But they did not give up until they made it right. And once they made it right, it says God again heeded the prayers of the people and the rains came upon the land once again. When they finally resolved things and did what was necessary. And you know what? When things are not proper and things are not right, sometimes the way God we see in Scripture will get our attention is the Lord will refrain the Lord will withhold his favor and his blessing. It doesn't mean he doesn't love, but sometimes he will pull back his hand as a way to get our attention until we make something right that we need to make right. You know, this, as I read this, reminds me of the passage many of us know it. I'll close with this, Second Chronicles chapter 7. Can I remind you of what it says? Let me read it to you. It says, that God declares Second Chronicles 7, when I shut up the heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. Notice when God does that, when God shuts things off, when God causes things to be difficult, he then says this, verse 14, if my people, God's people, because we know better, we know that we should make things right. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. God wants to forgive. God wants to heal. God wants to restore. But God wants us to do our part, which is to make things right on our end humanly when that's necessary. And that begins when we humble ourselves and turn to him. Let's stand together. Let's pray.